about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. morning guys. Um, my name's Ann. I'm one of the student ministers here. Um, I work mostly across the road um, as a GP and I do a few subjects at Bible College and I've been going to um, the nighttime service for the last five or six years. So thanks for having me this morning. So let me pray before I begin. Heavenly Father, uh, thanks for giving us the story of David and Goliath. May you give us a spirit to hear what it has to say and I pray that, it might preach, that I might preach what it has to say faithfully. Give us your spirit to be changed by it. Amen. So, Hunger Games, Aaron Brockovich, the Mighty Ducks. Everyone loves a good under, underdog story. Against all odds stories. Unexpected victor stories. Backs against the wall stories. Little guy beats big guy stories. Some might even call them David and Goliath stories. We've seen the Hollywood stories, but what does the actual David and Goliath story from the Bible teach us? Are we to be like David? Are we to stand up against the giants in our lives? Are we to equip ourselves with the five precious stones that will grant us victory? Or are we to make sure that in every battle we have enough bread and cheese? Well, let's dive in and let's try to find out. I'm going to make three observations for the story, from the story, and then maybe two things that we can take away from it. The first, the three are, we have a big opponent, an unlikely hero, a real and a real deliverer, question mark. So let's start at the beginning of the chapter. Point one, a big opponent. So the first three verses of this um, give us the setting for the story that is about to unfold. As we've already been told in 1 Samuel, the greatest threat to Israel at this time was the Philistines. So again, at the start of chapter 17, we see them gathering up their forces for war. We have the Philistines on one side of the valley, and the Israelites on the other. Then we meet our great adversary from verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his leg, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went before him. Now, growing up in Wollongong, uh, we used to go as a school uh, to cheer on the Wollongong Hawks, our local basketball team. And I used to think those guys were big. But apparently this guy was like half a meter taller than any of those guys. So being a small Asian dude, looking up, at the basketball players, and then I'm sure looking up at Goliath, you can imagine how big he was. 
And as a doctor, I find it somewhat hard to imagine someone being nine foot tall without having some sort of hormonal problem. But be it an accurate description of his height, or if there was some creative license involved in uh, how tall, description of how tall he was, um, nonetheless, he must have been one hell of an imposing soldier. And not only did he stand several heads taller than anyone else, he was kitted out in all the best gear. He wore bronze from head to toe, and his coat of armour apparently weighed more than 50 kilos. He carried a bronze sword and a spear with a tip that weighed seven kilos in and of itself. And not only did he have the best gear, but he had the confidence to back it up as well. As we've read, Goliath would come out twice a day with the confidence of a champion to put the freedom of his people on the line. As a single man, he defied the whole of the Israelite army. Give me a man to fight, he said. But was there one forthcoming? Who and where was this hero to be found? But it seemed like the Israelite hero was missing in action. As we read in verse 11, On hearing the Philistine words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So, it doesn't look super good for the Israelites at this moment. They've been scared, waiting for an attack, being mocked by this Philistine giant for the last 40 days. They were underpowered, without a hero to fight this mountain of a man. They had a big opponent. So Q.2, our unlikely hero. So after we met Goliath, we are left to think, who's the Israelite hero going to be? But if we remember back through 1 Samuel, we actually have one clear candidate already. From 1 Samuel 10, 23 to 24. They ran out and brought, they ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than all any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And from 1 Samuel 8, 19 to 20, We want, the Israelites said, a king for us. Well, then we will be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. So who was this king that was a head taller than all the others and that was meant to go before them and to fight their battles? Of course, it was our handsome incumbent king, King Saul. But clearly, as they were still quaking in their shoes, and as we heard last week, that the fact that the Lord's Spirit had left him, Saul was not going to be the hero that they needed. So who was it going to be? Let's meet again, David. What we're told about David in the next section from verses 20 to 30, 12 to 30, rather, seems all a bit mundane. We learn that it, he was the youngest of eight, too young to be of fighting age. And indeed, he's been left home to tend the sheep. From verse 17, we get a beautifully unremarkable description of the realities of bringing supplies to his brothers and a gift to their commander. And as you'd expect from a loving father, we hear his father's wish 
to hear that his sons were doing well on the battlefront. From verse 20, we can imagine David, this young, ruddy boy, as he sets out for his day's journey of about 20 kilometers to get um, to the battlefront with his supplies. He arrives just as the two sides were getting ready to face each other on their battle lines. And in his excitement, he leaves the supplies with the logistics soldier as he rushes off to see his brothers. As he gets to his brothers, the great giant of Gath, Goliath, comes and gives one of his twice daily shows. And then from verse 25, David hears the chatter among the soldiers that instead of facing Goliath himself, King Saul has offered great wealth, a daughter in marriage, and freedom in the kingdom to the man who can defeat this great Goliath. It's like David quite doesn't believe what's going on. Why aren't they fighting? So he goes around to other groups of soldiers and, they, and other soldiers and other soldiers, and they all repeat what the first group of soldiers said. From verse 28, we can then get this odd interaction between the siblings. His oldest brother accuses him of letting his duties slip and even for being wicked, only coming so he could watch the excitement of the battle. In verse 29, the sibling jealousy boils over and David says, Now what have I done? Can't I even speak? I think I remember my sister saying that to me. And so David leaves his brothers and continues on asking even more soldiers why no one has gone out to take on this Philistine. The story of this little kid then takes an odd turn from verse 31 as news of his pestering the soldiers and his incredulity that no one had stood up to this Philistine, Goliath, somehow made it to the king, and he was summoned to give account to King Saul. And the next scene gets even stranger still, as it's suddenly this young, ruddy boy that is trying to stand up for Israel, to stand up for God and his people. Can you imagine it? This incredibly tall, handsome, imposing king, King Saul, is being given a lecture or being spoken to by David, this small shepherd boy. It just doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? In verse 32, David offers to fight Goliath and is met again with this reasonable response that, um, you know you're um, like a small kid, right? Yeah? And um, that dude is like a fighting machine? Are you sure this is the right thing to do? So in this part of the story, we get this amazing contrast as to who was going to be the champion for Israel. We have the current king of Israel, the one that the people asked for, the one that God had given them, this tall, imposing, handsome figure. And then he's contrasted with God's chosen and anointed king, David, the one that God saw through his heart and that he had chosen. In physical stature and also in stature in the kingdom, two more different people you could not find. But one is God's rejected king, and the other is God's unlikely hero. So now we've looked at the big opponent and the unlikely hero. Let's move to point three. A real deliverer? Question mark. We're up to verse 34 now. 
In response to King Saul's accusation that he's just a boy, we get this other great picture of young David, maybe in his enthusiasm, recounting how he, as a shepherd boy, fought off lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. And he rescued these sheep from their mouths. And as God kept him safe as he fought off these animals, in the same way God will deliver him against the Philistine that defies God. From verses 37 to 39, King Saul begrudgingly agrees and allows David to go, but at least tries to help him by giving him his armor. David, understandably, as a shepherd boy, is not used to wearing a full-grown man's battle armor, so he rejects it in favor of what he's used to in his daily life, his staff and his sling. As David approaches, Goliath is rightly offended that the Israelites might send this small ruddy boy to fight him and threatens to feed him to the local wildlife. And from verse 45, David responds that he comes in the name of the Lord and the victory is the Lord's and God will indeed deliver victory to David that the whole world will know and fear the God of Israel. After all of this build-up, it seems just as quickly as the battle starts in verse 48, it finishes. As David slings a rock into Goliath's skull and he collapses. And Goliath meets an unruly end as David cuts his head off and casually in 54 takes it off to Jerusalem as the Israelites overrun the retreating Philistines. God's chosen king has prevailed. And so is David this real deliverer? So what do we learn from this story? I think it teaches us a couple of things. The first is, I think, that the real threat is not Goliath, but their lack of faith. Their real threat is not Goliath, but their lack of faith. All through this story, we have seen that King Saul and Israel were so fearful of the Philistines and of Goliath. They saw the massiveness of the challenge and the threat of this nine-foot man, and thus they forgot again what God had promised them. We had this beautiful prayer by Hannah, the mother of Saul, at the start of the book, from chapter 2, 9 to 10. He, the Lord, will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Where had their faith gone? All through Israel's history, God has promised to deliver his people. However, here again we see the Israelites overwhelmed by their fear of Goliath and thus lose their faith in God. Goliath was only one man, certainly possibly the largest man to have ever existed, but the Israelites had the promises of God. The God that brought plagues upon Egypt and parted the seas to save them and to make them his people. Ultimately, their threat was not Goliath, but their faith, sorry, their lack of faith in the promises of God. And this moves us to the second thing that I think that the text teaches us. I've named it, not the sword, but the Lord. 
Cacio. Not the sword, but the Lord. Last week from chapter 16, we heard that God is not interested in the outward, but sees with his heart. That is, God really isn't interested in outwardly or worldly appearances. And this week again, we see that everyone is concerned with the outward, worldly appearance. But only God's chosen one, David, is concerned with where God is in this battle. Indeed, the first mention of the Lord in this story is muttered by David in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And similarly, he attributes his salvation from the wild animals not to his strength, but in verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David is a man of insight. He does not see the situation as man sees it, but as the Lord sees it. And even more so, his reliance is not on what he sees, but what he knows to be true. Unlike Saul and Goliath, who trusted in their worldly might, their physical stature and their physical armor, David trusted in the promises of God. As I said, what is it? Not the sword, but the Lord. (laughs) Let's read verse 45. You came against me with the sword and the spear and the javelin, but I came against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Verse 47. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you all of your all of you into our hands and lastly in verse 50 so david triumphed over the philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand he struck down the philistines and killed him god is showing here that the israelites sorry showing the israelites here that they should trust in him and he will save them as he has promised He is humbling them to show them that he does not need armies to bring the enemy down, but he will use this ordinary boy that he has chosen and given his spirit. So as David is able to see as God does, how this really helps us is that David is really foreshadowing Jesus, who ultimately demonstrates how God sees the world. The Israelites were looking for their great saviour, They looked to their worldly battles and for their worldly king to bring them the promised land and blessings that God had promised the people through their father Abraham. But Jesus knew that the battle, the great battle, was not against earthly kingdoms, but against sin and death. And Jesus waged war not with the sword, but with the word and the cross. I think the Israelites, like the Israelites, we can be like them, Uh, We look to win our worldly battles and to pass them off sometimes as spiritual ones. For some of us, that might look like how we can demonstrate that we can be better than non-Christians, that God shows that he is with us by blessing us more, maybe in status or in health or in material wealth, or as I would say, the sword. Or maybe for some of us, our current time and especially in the inner west of Sydney, that we as Christians can love God, but also be better people 
than our non-Christian friends, that we might love the environment, have a social conscience that is just as good, if not better, than the non-Christians, that we can love people like God better than them. We can sometimes think that by wielding these successes, that we are fulfilling the purposes of God, or that we can show the might of God and that non-Christians will come to trust in Jesus because of our success. But God confronts us, I think, in this story that we need to look to the Lord and not to the sword. We are here not to meet the expectations of the world in our goodness or in our blessings, but to hold on to this world and the name of Jesus Christ. And we need to trust that it is the truth of Jesus, the true David that defeats Goliath, Um, not only Goliath, sorry, but sin and death on the cross And this is ultimately what will save us. We have a God who conquers. We are not the David in this story. And Goliath is not ours to conquer. We need not choose our five best stones, but hold on to the true David who has already won the battle for us, Jesus. So let us hold on to him. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.